Well, how much do you appreciate our worship team and all that they do week after week? You know, actually, uh, what I'd like you to do is go ahead and pull your phones out online, uh, go ahead and jump on the chat. I'd love for you to share some personal stories of the way God has met you specifically through uh, the musical portions of our worship services, through, if you've been around here for months or years, just think of an example, a line from a song, a call to worship moment, a scripture reading, just something where you really, you remember, and maybe it's something from this morning in the service, just just write something out for uh, just perspective and context, because do you know it's like 50 plus people who are involved in worship ministry around here? Did you know that? All our tech team and everybody who gets up on beautiful mornings like this one to come early and, you know, walk across the church parking lot to that beautiful, brisk north breeze. And, um, but it's all, you know, it's all for the sake of what, you know, Chelsea read for us out of Psalm 103, let everything that has breath, right? We're going to praise the Lord and he's worthy of it. And uh, what I've come to appreciate so much about the people who share their musical talents and technical talents with us, you know what makes great worship leaders? Are they themselves are personal worshipers. And it's who they are in their own walks with Christ. And they just kind of collectively offer their gifts and offer their hearts to us. And that's how, and it, it impacts us, right? Church, like, uh, we're impacted by that. Our, our, our souls are often are lifted. Our hearts are lifted. Sometimes maybe your story is you remember a day and you were coming in carrying something and there was a specific song, a specific moment, a specific lyric, something where you know God met you in that. And I'd love to just have some of those recorded. I'd love to be able to share some of those with the team and the individuals to remind them again of how God uses their acts of service. And so do that. Can you permission given? I know you're all on your phones anyway most of the time. So permissions given. You, t- info at eaglechurch.com. So send the email to info at eaglechurch.com. Online, you can either send an email that way or jump on. And then our online host, can you make sure we record those and maybe screenshot those and capture them uh, so we can share those through the week? We'd really appreciate that. All right. If you've got a Bible near you, open it up to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. I read a story uh, a few years ago, and it was about a young boy who was at a large kind of shopping complex, and he was standing at the bottom of an escalator, and he was by himself, and like many other concerned moms at that point might do, would some concerned woman came up and said, "Um, are you lost? He's just standing at the bottom of the escalator and just staring, and she said, are you lost? And he looked up at her and said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, and he looked real intently at the escalator again. She said, are you sure you're not lost? Can I help you? No, ma'am. I'm just waiting for my gum to come back. (laughs) So church, we've come to the place in the story of Joseph where the gum has come around on the escalator. Do you remember where we left Joseph off in this journey? And just kind of remind us of the context of where we're at in the story. We're, we're spending the year immersing ourselves from Genesis to Revelation. And if you haven't gone on a journey personally through this book, let me commend it to you and invite you to join us. Uh, there's a lot going on in this book. I happen to think it's the most significant piece of literature the world has ever had in its possession. There's more written here to personally impact our lives than any other piece of literature written ever. And so we think it's worthy of immersing ourselves in all of the words, 
And some of it's really hard to understand. Some of it can get really confusing, and there's a lot going on. And, and so what we're doing is we're immersing through the week in our reading. And if you haven't jumped in on the reading plan, you can do that. You can go to eaglechurch.com prayer, and there's a place for you to sign up. There's like 250, some of us, reading. We're just in, um, in Exodus now and working our way through that section, about, about to jump even into the tougher sledding parts of the Old Testament narrative. But we started here on Sunday mornings looking at Genesis 12 and how God called Abraham to start a plan for regathering what he scattered in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Because the people got together, and in their sin, and in their selfishness, and in their pride, they were going to show God they were going to do life without Him. God confused their language, scattered them about the earth in Genesis 11. Genesis 12 onward, your Bible records. So this much of your Bible from Genesis 12 onward records God's regathering plan for what He scattered. And the core of his plan starts with an elderly man named Genesis with his wife, Abraham, named Sarah. And so Abraham and Sarah, at 75 and 65, God says, I'm going to build a nation through you, and that nation becomes Israel. And so we've been looking at the storyline of how Abraham and Sarah eventually have Isaac, and how Isaac marries Rebekah and has Jacob and Esau, and how Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So the nation, God's got this plan that he's going to, he selects Abraham. He says, I'm going to build a nation through you. That nation is going to be Israel and eventually has 12 tribes. And one of those tribes is Judah. And as we get into the New Testament and you get to the end of the story, it says the savior of the world, Jesus comes to us from the tribe of Judah through the nation of Israel and the line of Abraham. So we see the thread being pulled, and we're at this place in the story from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, one of Jacob's 12 sons is Joseph. It's one of the sons that he had with his wife, Rachel. And so we've got Joseph now. We've been studying this picture of what's happened to this young man. He's introduced to us at 17 years old in chapter 37, tossed into a cistern, sold on a wagon ride to who knows where, ends up at Potiphar's house, an Egyptian military leader in chapter 39. Mrs. Potiphar sells him out, comes up with a big lying scheme to her husband and basically, you know... Basically, what happened, Joseph lands in prison, even though he's innocent, and he's forgotten there for two years. So at 17, and today, they think he's around 30 years old in Genesis 45, where we pick up the story today. And so from 17 to 30, we've got a lot going on. There's been a lot of things that have been happening, and the part of the story we're in now is where the gum comes around on the escalator, where the things were... We couldn't quite figure out what you're doing, God. It starts making a little more sense in these settings. You live most of, I think we live a good portion of our life with God in chapter 37 to like 42, where you're just not quite sure why you're going through what you're going through. You're not quite sure how one dot connects to another. And then there are little windows, there are little times where God pulls back the curtain and gives you a picture and you can say, oh, it's starting to make a little more sense now. And what's making more sense is Joseph is now appointed in Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. He's now appointed secretary of agriculture. He's in Pharaoh's cabinet. He's like a vice president type level. And he's in charge of the food supply. Why is that a big deal? Well, there's a famine in the land. And God's people, the nation of Israel, God knows they've got to live. And God knew the famine's coming. And God knew he needed a person who's in charge of the largest food supply in the world, Egypt. They have the largest storehouse of food. 
And so he puts his man, Joseph, in charge of that food supply so that his people, Israel, could come and eat. So God knew. He knew what he, remember, he said, God's got the large arc of Joseph's life in mind, but Joseph, like us, pretty much wouldn't have any idea what's going on for a good portion of it. Like, what in the world is the Lord doing with this particular chapter of our life? And Joseph can't figure out from the cistern to the wagon ride to the jail cell, like, what in the world, God, are you doing? And this comes the point where now the brothers have come, as 11 brothers have come to Egypt because they're hungry and they know Egypt has food. And the brothers think Joseph is where? If he's not dead, he's been sold off to who knows where, the Ishmaelite traders have sold. They think he's long gone. The brothers have no context that Joseph is still alive and certainly not where we find him in chapter 45. We're going to pick up the story here as the brothers have come in to Pharaoh's court, setting themselves up before the secretary of agriculture, Joseph. Picture this scene. He's in kind of an elevated seat of leadership. The 11 brothers are bowing before, begging for food. Does that remind you of something? Remember the dream he had at 17 in chapter 37, though he didn't handle it very well, the sheaves of grain bowing down to him, he's seeing a fulfillment of them. All of his brothers are before him. And he says, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. There's your drop the mic moment right there. Like just drop the mic. I am Joseph. Is my father still living? So he wants to know about Jacob. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Have you ever had those moments in life where your brain is saying to you, this is not possible, but your eyes are saying, this is happening. That's what's going on with these brothers. Like, wait, he said, I'm Joseph. Brain says that's not possible. Eyes say, he's saying he's Joseph and he's asking about dad. (laughs) That's what's going on. Here, and then verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. Can you see that? Hey, hey, come close to me. And can you see him like, and he opens up his eyes a little more, right? And he says, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. And he's probably opened his eyes like, look beyond the makeup, look beyond all the Egyptian uniform. I'm your brother Joseph. Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, verse 5. And now do not be distressed. That would be an important line because he seems to be in all the position of power. And remember when they left him off, they weren't like all buddy-buddy as brothers at this point. So don't be distressed, he says, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Now I want you to underline this phrase. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Man, that's a key line right there. That's Joseph saying this now. Verse 6, for two years now there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be plowing and reaping. Verse 7, underline this phrase, but God sent me ahead of you. It's another key line. To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, so then, underline this, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now, can you imagine the brothers trying to process that speech? So here's a window into what in the world was God doing with Joseph from 17 to 30. You know what he was doing? He was building the beams of this young man's interior world. How strong is this young man's perspective right here? 
How thick are those beams right now to uphold the responsibility that's been in, the authority that's been entrusted to him? Look at the perspective he has. And God's like, I've got my man. I've got him in the position. It was all along the way. It wasn't about just getting his man to be secretary of agriculture in Egypt. It was that. It wasn't just that. It was about who he will be when he gets there. Because God knew he needed a man in that position of authority who would steward the responsibility in a way that we're reading right here. How good of a job has God done here? He's formed, he's molded, he's shaped primarily in places of the dark and hidden quiet cisterns, the wagon ride to who knows where, sold out in injustice by Mrs. Potiphar, an act of betrayal, forgotten in the jail cell. All of that stuff, all those times where you're just on this winding road, you're like, what are you doing, God? I don't understand, God. I'm 17. I have this vision, a glimpse, a dream about what you're going to do with my life. From 17 to 30, it doesn't make any sense until here. He's sitting on this position He's in this seat, he sees his brothers, and wow, look at, I would call Joseph, he's become a large-souled man. And don't you appreciate large-souled men and women? You know when you're around them. They just radiate something. You know when you've been in the presence of someone whose soul has been groomed, molded, shaped by the hand of God, forged in some of those darkness and aloneness places, who stewarded the suffering. Certainly wasn't easy. I'm sure Joseph said, I don't want to relive any of that, but who's become the kind of man that we read here, especially in verses 5, 7, and 8. So two applications from this storyline this morning, kind of a bridge from Joseph's life to our lives. As we, for the most part, spend a good chunk of our years waiting for the gum to come around. First application is this. I think we're supposed to hold on to what we do know while we journey through what we don't. The longer I'm in pastoral ministry, church, the more I find myself saying, I don't know. And I, some of you, I, I, we've had those conversations. The couple who comes who, from my perspective and everyone around them would say, they'd be unbelievable parents amazing parents. And year after year goes by, and the womb is barren, and it's infertility, and it's heartbreak, and heartbreak, and loss, and where is God? And we know God's the author of life, and why would you not entrust this couple with a child? And then simultaneously, I'm working in another situation. I'm like, this situation would be helpful if they stopped having children. Anybody been there? You just go, I... God, what are you doing? And the couple says, Pastor, what, what's God doing? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Or the person who comes to have a conversation that goes something like this. Why does everyone I love so much walk out on my life? I don't know. I don't know. Or far too many conversations... Uh, with men especially at certain stages of life and conversation goes something like, why do I just go from one addictive behavior to another addictive behavior to another addict, and I know all along the way it's destroying me and everyone around me. Why do I keep doing that? 
I, I don't know. I think the longer we live in life, I think the more we have to get comfortable with the, I don't know. But I don't think we should stop there. I think we should be honest that there's just good portions of this life that are going to be lived in the category of what I would call mystery. Where we just, we don't have, it's not, you don't have a chapter and a verse for it. You don't have a one sentence. You don't put it on a t-shirt for the answer. It just doesn't work. Like, it, it, there's no straightforward, like, where is God in this? It's, it's mystery. But as you've heard me say many times, I don't think mystery is the absence of meaning. I think it's this. It's the presence of more meaning than we're able to comprehend. There's more going on in the situation than we can get our finite minds and hearts around. And that's for Joseph. I think that's for us. That in the midst of being honest about what we don't know, which I want you to know, whatever you're going, we're, we're the kind of community we want you to know it's safe to be honest about current reality. Even if current reality is, I don't know. That this isn't the kind of church community where there's an answer for every, there's not a straightforward answer for some of the brokenness that some of you are enduring. The straightforward answer is in the I don't know and in the mystery, but we don't stop there. We hold it honestly and say, I, I don't know but then we anchor ourselves to what we do know while we're journeying through all that we don't know. I don't know why, why one individual whom is prayed for to be released from all kinds of physical infirmities and pain and heartbreak, and why God just seems to miraculously sweep in and heal one person, just literally healed and then this other person just goes from one degree of suffering physically to another one. I don't, I don't know. But while I, I'm going to hold on, here, here, here's what I do know. And I think Joseph, like, can you picture like Joseph? I think Joseph got a PhD in like holding on to what he does know while he journeys through what he doesn't know. Like there's a PhD for that young man. When he's in the bottom of the cistern, when he's on the wagon ride, when he's sold out by Mrs. Potiphar, when he's in the jail cell for two years sitting there, probably every time the jailer went by, running to the edge, is this my time to get out? Two years. And all of that, what's he holding on to? What are we holding on to, church? What are you holding on to today? Maybe you're in the middle of one of those places right now. What are we going to hold on to? We're going to hold on to what God has revealed about himself here. That God has told us that his face is turned towards us in love. We're going to hold on to that. That God loves you. He's turned towards you in love. We're going to hold on to the fact that God has good plans for your life. He's got your best in mind. That we're going to hold on to that. That God's not out to destroy your life. He's not out to wreck your life. He's a good, good father. He's a father, yet I've yet to meet a parent who upon handed their child says, I can't wait to wreck your life. That's not what we do. And the Bible's primary metaphor for God is Father. He loves us. His face is turned towards us. He's got good plans and purposes. He's at work with our best in mind. Another thing we'll hold on to, he's sovereign. Do you know that's a Bible word for in control? And we've gotten a front row seat this past year plus of all the things, especially we Americans think we're in control, we're not nearly in control as we think we are. 
There's only one who's ultimately got this world in the palm of his hands, working out his purpose. He's the sovereign Lord. He's working out a purpose and a plan that often is bigger than we can see. We're just looking at a little slice of it, and we can't see what's on the other side. He's got the whole arc of salvation history he's working on, and we're just right here, just a little slice in there, and we're going to hold on to what? That God's, he's got his heart, his face is turned towards us in love, that his plans and purposes are good, he's got our best in mind, and that he's in control. When you got no idea who's got this thing in his hand, that the Lord, the sovereign, this is what God says, I am in control. I will work out my plans. I will work out my purposes through the cistern, through the wagon ride, through Mrs. Potiphar, through the jailhouse. I'll get you to secretary of agriculture. And here's the deal with us. It's not just about getting us through life. <laughs> He's going to get us through this winding road of life. He'll get us through it's who we're becoming on the way. That's just a great picture right here. And the way the soul gets enlarged is in this crucible where you hold on to what you do know, which is why we've got to be a people immersed here because there'll be no lack of stuff we're going to journey through what we don't know. And if you're not there, just keep living. You'll be there. And you're going to need to be able to anchor yourself on the promises and character of God. This is why we need the community of Christ around us. We need a brother or sister to come alongside. I need people to remind me of these things. When I just can't see and I don't understand, remind me of who God. That's why the gift of music and our lyrics, sometimes it's just through the power of song. I know about you. For me, it's just the rightly placed song at just the right time in the middle of the dark shines a ray of light. There's just the power of music. Or just the power of a personal word from a close friend. So Joseph, sitting in his place, brothers before him, they need food. Brothers can't even piece together like, this is the guy we sold? Can you imagine the conversations they had to have together? We're going to pick it up here, look at the second principle. Because they're sitting there thinking, well, in 37, we left him in the cistern, sold him on the wagon ride. He goes third chapter 39 to Potiphar's house, and then in 40, he's in the jail cell, and now we're at 45. Pick up verse 13. Uh, that he wants to go, he wants his dad, you know, hey, go get dad and bring the family back. He's trying to tell his brothers, go get the rest of the crew because we're going to take care of you. Tell my father, verse 13, about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. Now, what does dad think's happened to Joseph? They think he's dead, right? Because what did the brothers do with Joseph's robe? They dipped it in animal's blood, and they took it back to dad and said, hey, dad, uh, Joe, Joe was attacked, wild animal, he's gone, and so dad's been grieving. Dad's long since said goodbye to his son. And some of you in places of grief and loss, that, that's right there, this is Jacob. Jacob's been grieving the loss of his son. And then he got put in the crucible of Benjamin, the only remaining son that he had through Rachel. That that's the one that they sent to kind of check out what's going on in Egypt. So he's just been grieving the loss and wondering about all of this. Tell dad. Tell him about everything the Lord has done. And then bring my father here quickly. Verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him. 
weeping. Why is he so singled out Benjamin? Because it's the only biological brother that he has with Rachel. So Jacob and Rachel had two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. So it's his blood brother. The others are half-brothers. And so that's why Benjamin and he have such a close relationship. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Isn't that an understatement? That's like an understatement in the Bible. Like, what are you, does anybody else's mind go, what did you guys talk about? Like, I wrote down a few things. I thought, they probably said, hey, Joe, like, where did you end up after we put you on that wagon? Like, where'd that wagon go? I bet they ask about that. Or, hey, Joe, that's like a sweet robe you got. That's even better than the one dad gave you. Like, that Egyptian robe you're wearing, that's so sweet-looking outfit. Or, hey, how about this? Uh, uh, Joe, Joe, what's it like having all these Egyptians report to you? What's that like? But they talked about that. Or probably one of the more bold brothers probably said, Joe, don't you, like, want to go throw us all in a cistern right now? think about, do you feel like all that's in the balance of this story? Do you see how God had to get not just Joseph to this position of leadership? Do you see how he had to work the character of this man to hold this moment the way God would want it held and to steward it? Do you see this? Because right here, the nation of Israel could go down the tube right here. Because if Joseph decides to go revenge, anger, get back at you, rub your face in it, he could end the nation. He could wipe out the 11 and their family units, starve them to death, throw them in a city. He's got all the power and authority to do the whole thing. Do you see how much is at stake here? And how much in our lives, when we're on the receiving end of betrayal, hurt, just not done right, how much, how much of a work of the Spirit of God do we need in our hearts to respond like we see Joseph here where he He's just moving in this space of forgiveness and grace and perspective. And it's just, it's an amazing picture. And so I wrote this as the second principle. I think it's a bridge from his life to ours is that not only do we hold on to what we don't know while we journey through what we do know, hold on to what you do know while you journey through what you don't know. Secondly, God will come through, but often in unexpected ways. I thought of it this way. So much of life we experience that we think it's a period at the end of the sentence. Like we just think we experience, like chapter 37 for Joseph had to feel like a period at the end on the cistern. Probably felt like a period on the wagon ride when he's sold by Ishmael at Traders. Probably felt like a period when Mrs. Potiphar sells him out. Probably felt like a period in the jail cell. Like so much of life We just think it's a period at the end of this. We think it's over, it's done, nothing good can come. But what we experience or what we see as a period at the end, hear this, it's a comma in the middle. It's a comma. God's not done writing the sentence yet. Now, for some, that comma is like a really long pause. For Joseph, it was 13 years, the comma was, from 17 to around 30. It was like a decade plus where it was like, I know, Joe, you think it's, it's a period at the end. It's a comma in the middle. I'm not done writing the sentence yet. I'm going to finish writing this. You've still got breath of life in your lungs. If you're not dead, you're not done. There's still more to be written. So for Joseph, it's 13 years. For Jesus, how about when Jesus was on the earth? There was a really strategic comma from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. It was a three days in there. 
When they rolled the stone away and laid the body motionless, lifeless, and for the disciples staring into that lifeless tomb, it was a comma. It looked, it was a period. God said, no, it's a comma. Sunday's coming. I'm going to roll the stone away. Or how about for us as a church, like Jesus' church from Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended and left him, he said, hey, in the same way you see me go, I'm going to come back. We've been in like a 2,000 plus year comma. We're, little, we're waiting 2,000 plus years for him to return. So whether it's 13 years, whether it's three days, whether it's two millennia, here's a picture you get with God. God will come through on his promises. He's a man of his word. If he said it, he is going to deliver upon it. We'll often experience it and see it as a period at the end of a sentence. And the word, and life of Joseph reminds, hey, well, we take the array. It's not a period. It's a comma in the middle. There's still more to be written. He's not done yet. You'll see one day how 37 got linked to 39, got linked to 40, got linked to 45. But when you're in 37, 39, or 40, you got no idea. But for Joseph, the gum comes around on the escalator. And for 13 years, what for the most part was the grand mystery. He now looks at and goes, that is connected to all of this. Well, like most of you, I've been doing a fair amount of COVID house projects. That's what my brother has termed them. You've got your own COVID house projects going on. Now, what you know about me, if you know me at all, is I don't have much craftsmanship at all. Um, I've got great determination and great friends. That'll get you a long way. So having the right friends with the right tools and great determination, <laughs> that's been my, and uh, learning, I'm learning. So, you know, we've been sitting around the house and, you know, spending a lot more time in our four walls of our house looking around going, boy, that, 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 that's been long overdue to get done. And one of those projects was the light over the kitchen table area where we eat most of our meals. Like we've just been saying for a long time, we need to change out that light. So we ordered something, we got it in, and you know, I don't really know how to put lights up very well, but I got the instruction sheet out, and I got the instruction sheet, and it might as well have been written in a foreign language. Like, you know Ikea instruction sheets, how poorly those are done? This made Ikea look outstanding. That's how bad this was. And of course, it was after hours, couldn't call the 1-800 number, anything, nothing on Google was helping me out. I was staring at this, and I laid out all the parts, and I, I saw how everything could go together, but these four key parts, they're four metal sleeves. Here's a picture of the light. So these four metal sleeves, they're on the chain. These four metal sleeves I had laid out, and I said, I don't, what are these sleeves for? And I, in my craftsmanship brilliance, decided they're like to kind of decoratively cover the chain. Don't look at me all Judge Judy right now. Like some of you craftsman guys all going, gee, Simpson, and like, stay with me. I decided that's what they were for. Now, so if you do that, you have to like run all your wires and all your chain and all your mounting. It's got to run through those four sleeves. You with me? So Kendra's helping me, and we get it all up there, and we kind of step back from it all. It doesn't look too bad. It doesn't look quite like we... But that must be what it's for. 
And then, next slide. We turn the light on. Can you see when the light's on? Can you look at the base of the lights? Does anybody see at the base of the lights? Go ahead, be Judge Judy now. It's fine. So when the light was turned on, we could see that those four sleeves were actually for the base of each of the four lights to slide them down, have a nice deck, like right here, I know you can't see the close-up, but you see like the kind of the guts of the wiring under each light. So we're standing there looking at it, I go, well, Kendra says, well, honey, just take the sleeves off the chain and put them on the light. Yep. I said, well, honey, do you know what that involves? This is a quite difficult installation. So this is a couple hours plus project going on. And I said, well, we have to undo everything we just did for the last two plus hours. She's like, that actually looks pretty good. She's like, that looks pretty good. <laughs> no, we just didn't finish it that day. I think we picked it up a couple more days. But here's my point. We couldn't see it until the light was turned on. And I wonder, church, how many lights God's been turning on in your life and mine. Perhaps through some of the toughest 12-plus months some of you have been living, or perhaps even just the last few weeks, or even perhaps a morning like this. Whether it's a, a sermon you hear where God flips on the light, and you go, I've I've got a perspective that I didn't have before. What I thought was kind of eternal, like it's fixed, it's a period, it's actually, it's a comma. My current reality isn't eternal. Like, like I've got, I, I just see things differently. Would God turn on some lights? Or maybe it was you, you were spending time just kind of reading the Word during the week and you just go, God turned on the lights. You're like, ah. Or maybe a friend came to you, had the conversation that long overdue needed to be had, and God turned on the lights. Or maybe it was a, a song you heard at just the right time, God turned on the lights. And when God turns on the lights, you're the young boy at the bottom of the escalator, and the gum comes around, and you go. What made virtually no sense from chapter 37 to 42 I see it so much more clearly with the lights on. And church, in that journey, here's what we do. While we're waiting for that, the lights to come on and the gum to come around and the perspective that we see in Genesis 45, here's what we do. We hold on. We hold on to what we do know while we're honest about what we don't know. And we recognize that sometimes what feels like a period at the end is a comma in the middle. God's not done with your sentence yet. He's not done with your story. There's more to be written. And I close Joseph's storyline with his closing words. These are the last words Joseph was speaking, Genesis chapter 50. He gathers his whole family together. 
Listen to this perspective. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The light switches on and the gum came around and Joseph says, I see it a little more clearly now. I trust you, God. Let's pray. Father, so many circumstances and situations where we just can't see and we don't understand and we don't know. Uh, And thank you for a storyline like Joseph, for a chapter like this, for a moment when the light switch flips on. And I pray maybe this morning by the power of the Spirit, just turn on some lights by the power of the Spirit. Just turn on some lights. Help us to see what we thought was the right solution before, and you go, maybe not so much. And help us have the humility to surrender and to trust and to just invite you to continue to do the work. I pray that you would give us the grace to hold on to the truths we know about who you are and to your love for us, to your plans for us. And then give us the eye of faith to see beyond what feels like a period at the end of a sentence. Give us the eye to see beyond the comma. You've still got the pencil in your hand and you've still got more to write. So give us the grace and the faith and the strength to wait, to wait upon the Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.